to the Future Think podcast from the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University. I'm Heather Ross. Together with my colleague, Andrew Maynard, we chat with a variety of experts on and off campus about science, technology, innovation, and policy. This podcast brings you the hallway conversations where we think about our collective future. In the last episode, Andrew and I talked with Jamie Wetmore and Ira Bennett, and one of the things that we talked about was an article that our colleague Dan Sarowitz wrote in The New Atlantis called Saving Science from Itself. Well, today I sat down with Dan to talk about that article and get a little bit of the backstory, where it came from and what impact it's had. I will tell you that Dan is one of my mentors. He was part of my dissertation committee and has been a really, um, I really, really value what Dan has to say. And he has been incredibly generous um, to me as a young scholar. So it's possible that I'm a little bit biased um, about Dan Sarowitz. Nonetheless, he is always provocative, he is always humble, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Before we start, as always, please subscribe to the Future Think podcast. You can do that on iTunes, SoundCloud, uh, Stitcher, and look for us coming soon on the Google Play as well. Um, you can tweet at us at Future Think Pod. Uh, you can also like our Facebook page, Future Think Podcast, and leave us comments there as well. Thank you very much for listening. Hope you enjoy it. So you wrote this article in The New Atlantis, which has generated quite a lot of conversation. I hope so. What are you hearing? Um, Well, uh, I'm hearing um, the standard uh, bimodal responses. You know, my friends say, oh, that's great. Mm -hmm. Probably because they're my friends. And then there's... um, and then there's the you idiot you don't understand anything about science response. Okay. Um, and uh, and then there have been you know there have been some some somewhat um, interesting discussions on various email list serves about it. I, honestly, I try to I feel like you know my job is to try to get the conversation going, and after that I try not to pay too much attention. Okay. Um, All right. Because otherwise, a it could drive you crazy. Sure. Um, and uh, b I just feel like it's kind of a weird kind of ego phenomenon. So I just assume not pay attention. Um, that being said, I got some very interesting um, email responses to it from people who had mixed feelings, which okay. is probably the best response. Yeah, yeah, that's thoughtful. Um, yeah, and uh, for example, um, a really interesting. Response from a guy who runs a genomics lab at a major teaching hospital. Okay. Um, who uh, at first was was um, a bit unhappy with with what he thought was the, the the kind of challenge to the whole scientific enterprise in in the article. But mm-hmm. after a couple of exchanges, he then began to see his own experience in terms of exactly the sorts of things I was describing. And the experience was. He came into this hospital wanting to um, really closely link 
to run a genomics lab and closely link it to, to um, the clinical setting uh -huh. so that what was being learned by the MDs in the clinical setting was strongly informed what was going on in the way that um, problems were being articulated in the mm -hmm. genomics lab. And um, none of the genomics, you know, bench researchers really wanted to do that. Right. Um, but uh, they went off and got big NIH grants to do what they wanted to do, and his lab is considered to be a great success by the hospital, even though he considers it to be a failure because he feels like he failed to achieve what he wanted to uh, achieve when he went in, which was to really link the genomics to the clinical setting. And kind of that whole, that whole um, question about how you link scientific investigation, including very fundamental problem solving, Mm -hmm. to the the context of use is kind of the center of my argument. Right, um, right. Um, the idea being that, uh, that, I mean, two things. One is, is that the context of use provides actually a very kind of good um, way to discipline basic research mm -hmm. um, uh, because it, it basically provides some boundaries over the kinds of questions that can be asked, even if they're very fundamental. Mm -hmm. Um, but it also provides a test of whether the research is any good. Sure. And the, um, the, the kind of the aha moment I had that led to the writing of this paper was when the whole question of the quality of scientific research um, began to be something of a public, um, some, something in the public sphere. Okay. Uh, okay. The Economist ran a cover story of mm -hmm. it in, in um, about two years ago, three years ago, two thousand. And this was the replicability yes, of yeah. Yeah. So so what happened was something that you know those of us who think about science as a social process knew very well and have always known mm -hmm. um, suddenly became something that could be talked about uh, mm -hmm. that was covered in the mainstream media, and that certain somewhat courageous scientists, I should say, very courageous scientists, were beginning to blow the whistle on. Right. Which was essentially that. A lot of the published literature is crap, mm -hmm. and that the peer review system does a very bad job of distinguishing crap from good stuff, mm -hmm. uh, and increasingly it's hard to tell which which was which. Right. Um, and so, um, once that became public and therefore something that you could write about without fear of being labeled a crazy, sure, um, uh, it made me suddenly realize that it provided the key to understanding. Um, two very different things that I've been working on for a long time. One is the question of how you link, um, how you link knowledge creation to social value. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other was the question of um, how science gets wrapped up in politics right. uh, and becomes, um, in some ways, politics by another name. Right. And, um, and so, so what the quality problem got me thinking about was, was where does quality come from? Mm -hmm. And um, and it, you know, in thinking about the world that surrounds us, that is the technological world that we're enmeshed in, mm -hmm. um, most of that world came out of the military-industrial complex and post-World War II mm -hmm. environment for science. Right. And and what that was really about was was connecting huge investments in science to huge investments in technology, mostly with the intent of creating weaponry, but out of all of that came mm -hmm. computers and GPS and satellites and digital imagery right. and the internet and everything else that makes the world go around. Right. Um, and, and the point being that it was that tight 
connection between application and use and science mm -hmm. that kept the science honest. Yeah, and keeping the science honest, but I think also, and we see this in, filmmakers talk about this all the time. When you have a tiny little budget, you make really creative work, right? When you're constrained in that way, as opposed to these yes. ridiculous blockbuster films right. that have no budget, essentially. It's a free-for-all. Yeah. And yeah, and no, this crap. is a great point. Discipline is an amazing thing, right? I mean, so, th I mean, just think, to me, everything devolves to the Beatles. <laughs> I mean, you know, they were constrained by 15 minutes aside, you know, three mm -hmm. and a half minute songs, no self-indulgence, right. you know, and um, and the same is true, right, with, with low budget, you know, think about, the, you know, Mean Streets or, or you know, er, early films of great filmmakers before they got famous and got yeah. all their money, yeah, so, so the, it's a great analogy, I hadn't thought about it, but the same thing is true with science, mm -hmm. we're now investing billions, um, system exists in part to perpetuate itself mm -hmm. um, and where does the discipline c come from well in the in, in in the Cold War the discipline came from the mission of the Department of Defense and its need to to provide technologies in the competition against the Cold War I mean against the Soviet Union mm -hmm. and it's not that there wasn't lots of waste fraud and abuse sure. but there had to be outcomes right right and those outcomes were as you know as, as I said and we all know the list was, was basically the entire technological backbone of the modern world. Um, but that was, that represented a particular set of institutional arrangements. Mm -hmm. And that's not how we like to think of science. We like to think of science as not institutional arrangements, but individuals doing whatever they want, and the result is wonderful discoveries. And, uh, and from those discoveries, you know, we then uh, solve, solve human problems. And of course, that's not really historically how it happens. It's not, obviously, there's right. been Einsteins and Newtons and Curies and that crowd, mm -hmm. but it's a small crowd. And now what we have is, is tens of thousands of scientists mm -hmm. publishing literally millions of articles in tens of thousands of journals um, in, uh, across many, many disciplines, mm -hmm. a continuing proliferation of all of those things. Um, and right, it's th there. There's the th there's no nothing to discipline the enterprise and ensure its quality. Okay. And the claim always was peer review takes care of it, mm -hmm. and we now know that's wrong. Right. And right. Um, and uh, it's not that. Well, so so I'll just say I'll just leave it there. That that is way too simple version of things. And so so we see in fields that we've looked at carefully. Mm -hmm. We I should say that that that. Critics, you know, careful critics have looked at sure. carefully, um, especially in biomedicine, mm -hmm. uh, neuroscience, uh, mm -hmm. psychology. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we see that a lot of what's being done is no good. Right. Um, it's not replicable. That's only one measure of whether anything's good. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it, the statistics are bad. The, 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 the experimental um, design is bad, mm -hmm. um, and, and maybe most importantly, the conclusions that are being insisted upon are not simply not justified by the, right. by the data that's, um, uh, that's created. Um, and we also see lots of politics of know, in the science, too. So. So, so that's what the article is about, and, mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know, the, the question, of course, is, is what to do about it. Yeah. So w what are you, you know, you said that you're, you get the, you know, the praise and the, um, I know one 
there's one physicist who said he'll never work with you again on yeah, anything, I which that was a compliment. It, yeah, is a, is a triumph in some ways, um, maybe unintentional. Um, what about? I mean, are you hearing anything in terms of our institutions doing things differently, looking to change rules, things yeah. like this? So, 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 one of the you know tactics I took in the article was. Um, because I really wanted it to be positive, you know. Yeah, and, yeah. And so, um, and I've been, you know, thinking about this stuff for 25 years now, mm -hmm. and I know people who are doing things differently and who I think are really cool, and so mm -hmm. I featured three or four of them in the mm -hmm. article as kind of a counter, a set of counter themes um, to show how things might be, uh, might be done differently. So I think there's lots of institutional innovation that's really interesting going on mm -hmm. in, the, in the research system. Um, it's usually going on at a small scale, it's usually going on with, with in fairly kind of low-resourced environments, uh -huh. like early filmmakers. Right, um, right. It's going on um, kind of off-grid, as it were, uh -huh. because because the system doesn't reward. The, and this is the you know the, the irony, the irritating irony, right? Is everyone loves to talk about the you know, scientists being free to explore their curiosity, and we have tenure so that they can take you know take risks and everything else. But the system does not reward true innovation, it, it, it crushes true innovation. Um, what do you it, mean by that? Well, um, what you the things you have to do to succeed are publish papers and sure. get grants. Okay? Mm -hmm. And to publish papers and get grants, you have to please your peers, mm -hmm, you have mm -hmm. to be reasonably conventional, um, you have to do what everyone else is doing. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're trying to do something that's different from what everyone else is doing, uh, then um, you know, who's going to be out there to say that it's, that, that, that it's uh, you know, um, that it's worthwhile uh, because sure. you're also threatening someone else's um, uh, kind of paradigm of how, how things ought to be done. Right. Um, so what you see is uh, you see lots of, of um, you know, research fads. Mm -hmm. um, you see uh, lots of um, what the, the uh, business uh, economist um, Michelle Gittleman talks, calls, calls research paradigms. Uh -huh. So ways of, it's not quite what Kuhn meant by paradigm, right, but it's related. Right. It's ways of defining and pursuing problems. Genomics mm -hmm. is a, is a sure. big example. The one yeah. that I focus on a little bit more uh, in the article was um, uh, mouse brain mm -hmm. research yep. to try to understand human brains. Another is yeah. climate models to sure. try to un understand um, uh, climate change. So these are examples of of areas of research that are driven by a combination of technology, technological capacity, mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, money, mm -hmm. um, and status, and increasingly those they you know they they become sort of black holes, intellectual black holes, where you have to work if mm -hmm. you want to have legitimacy. Okay. Um, and then they, the institutions also organize around those. Of course. So so if you want to do something different, um, uh, it's very difficult for 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 the reasons of resources mm -hmm. of, of, of status and peer approval mm -hmm. um, and of also institutional organization there just simply aren't institutions to support different ways of doing things right um, so uh, so where you have to look to find things going in different directions is little experiments going on in places that allow exper experimentation sure. to, to happen sure so where it, it's maybe a low threat to the status quo or a low perceived threat to the status well quo. or 
um, or a place allows things to be done differently. You know, mm -hmm. so if I think of a couple of my favorite examples, one of which I didn't write about in the article, but it's the um, the, the uh, Toxic Use Reduction Institute at the University of Massachusetts Lowell, mm -hmm. which um, uh, looks at um, how to reduce the use of toxic chemicals in the environment in a very different way than the standard way. The standard way is you go out and do a bunch of epidemiological research, a bunch of toxicology, uh -huh. you show a positive cost-benefit analysis for reducing use of a toxic chemical, and then you drive a regulatory um, hammer down on industry. Okay. And all that does is it creates, it politicizes the science, it creates sure. endless litigation, and it's been complete failure, but it's how we do things. Mm -hmm. And we find a lot of science to support that kind of thing. Right. At Lowell, they do something very different, they look for alternatives to existing chemicals, mm -hmm. knowing that those chemicals have an economic function and that livelihoods mm -hmm. are organized around them. Um, they work with the private sector. Okay. They work with uh, with with um, chem chemical consumers and producers. Mm -hmm. They work with labor. Um, they work with all the stakeholders. Uh, what they don't do is cutting edge um, uh, uh, research that gets you lots of publications. Sure. Um, and it requires a completely different skill set. It, it, it leads to very different sorts of products. The laboratory that they that they uh, use at the Toxic Use Reduction Institute, you know, does not have the latest spect uh, you know spect spectroscopy, spectroscopy yeah. okay. electron microscopy. What it's mm -hmm, got is mm -hmm. you know basically looks like your high school shop class. Sure. Um, uh, because the science is designed in what I would call to to to, to explore the solution space uh -huh. as opposed to the problem space. Right. And um, and what allowed that to happen was kind of a, 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 um, uh, a coming together of a bunch of uh, different sorts of people, mm -hmm. including a college president, a provost, um, and some faculty who thought about the problem differently. And yep. that allowed it to happen at, at, at a place like UMass Lowell. Notice it didn't happen at Harvard no, School of, of Public not. Health. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And in fact, some of the people at Lowell are refugees from the Harvard School of Public Absolutely, Health. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and uh, so another example um, is, uh, that I do talk to write about in the article is the National Breast Cancer Coalition, mm -hmm. um, where basically patients got pissed off. These, they're really smart, they know a lot about the science, mm -hmm. they got angry that all this money was going into the science, and they helped get the money there and it didn't seem to be leading to progress right. as fast as they wanted to. So they said, fine, we're gonna, we're gonna organize scientists ourselves. Mm -hmm. We don't have money, but we think we can find scientists who are willing to do things essentially on their own dime because they're senior scientists. And we're gonna to try to really um, go at this problem in very different ways. So they have, for example, a, a, a project on a breast cancer vaccine. Uh -huh. um, it may or may not work. Right. The point is, no one, there was no institution that could take this on right. because it required bringing together top scientists, patients, people from industry, mm -hmm. all to work together on a high-risk project right. um, that the National Institutes of Health would have never funded. Sure. Uh, so these are just two examples of how, how kind of places that you know have the right people, the right motivation, mm -hmm. um, and the appropriate institutional setting are organizing in new ways to do science that that links you know science that can often be very mm -hmm. fundamental um, to the quest to solve problems um, in ways that the standard system does not allow or reward. If you like this podcast and you're enjoying the conversations that we're having, you might be interested in our master's program in science and technology policy. You can get more information online at sciencepolicy.asu.edu. And now back to the conversation. Well, so, and it seems like maybe a really critical ingredient there is not being beholden to 
the status quo. Yeah. And I think about um, the meeting that we had in your office in DC where Fran Visco was not afraid, from the National Breast Cancer right. Coalition, not afraid to say, listen, when you people write, you need to write so that a person can understand it. And I'm a very highly educated person and I can't get through what you're writing. It's like nonsense. Um, Fran is not beholden to right. academic settings. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah, and it's interesting. Something as simple as that, right? So we think, well, of course, you know, and, and it's interesting. She can actually understand a, a um, you know, very complicated uh, technical article about breast cancer, mm -hmm. but she can't understand the, you know, social science and policy gibberish that we write. Right? And so, it is gibberish, so, yes. Um, but but the, the general point is a really important one, you know. We, we get rewarded for using jargon to speak mm -hmm. to each other about things that only we can understand in the way that we communicate them. That is another kind of, so there's this kind of Tower of Babel out there, that's another kind of way that we prevent um, connections between creation of knowledge and, no and knowledge mm -hmm. use. So there's, um, yeah, there's all sorts of barriers to get around. And right, so, so often you find these innovators are fearless, mm -hmm. um, they're willing to take risks, uh, they're, they're often, um, you know, I've, I've made exerted a lot of effort, not entirely successfully, to find people in government who are doing things really innovatively mm -hmm. in, in R&D, so R&D managers who are trying to do things differently. And they're almost always running small, again, small programs, right, right. below the radar screen, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and, and they're, um, in, you know, they're, they're willing to take risks, they're not afraid, as you're right. suggesting. Yeah, there's the woman in the White House, the current White House, who, and I'm going to get this wrong, um, she was basically hired to come in and do, like, use psychology, behavioral psychology right. as, yeah. and yeah. she's with no budget, you yeah. know, and she kind of cobbled together this group of like 30 people, I think, and has had really profound impacts on policy making. Yeah, although you won't be surprised to know that I'm skeptical about that. Of course. Um, well, it's based <laughs> on it's based on psych research, which is right. not replicable. Exactly. Sure. Yeah. Sure. And it's very trendy and you know, we all love Dan Kahneman because he's brilliant and yeah, yeah. and and a, a wonderful writer and rock contour, but but it, it's an interesting example though of how of how policy and science um, did connect mm -hmm. around something that seemed like um, it would have some value for policy, so that's a great thing, right? Sure. But so and and um, you know the, the, these strong linkages between interesting areas of research and policy making is is exemplary. It's the kind of thing we want to do. Mm -hmm. But there's the deeper, darker question: is you know is is this um, science really valuable for uh, for the things it's being applied to, mm -hmm. um, especially because. Uh, you know, there's also a strong political component in the yeah. both the production of the science and the and the ways and the types of problems it's being used to solve. So, mm -hmm. um, and of course, I don't think that's bad because mm -hmm. I think um, you know if science and politics are going to inform each other, the science is always going to have uh, uh, an irretrievably um, political element to it. Mm -hmm. But but but. When you go down that road, you have to be willing to pay the consequences of that, which means you can no longer make the statements about science being you know, on its right. on its pedestal and independent right. of values and independent of right. of uh, of 
um, the subjective point of views of scientists, which, mm -hmm. you know, as we know, um, it isn't, or when it is, it's rarely of very much use. Right. So that then brings me to the subject that has been increasingly intriguing to me, politics, um, and the recent messages that we've been hearing from national politics in the United States, and this, you know, push against science and against um, fact and against intellectualism and expertise. So what does that mean for doing science? Yeah. Well, you won't be surprised to know that I don't see it quite that way. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, first of all, yes, of course, there's a long anti-intellectual tradition in the United States. Sure. And um, uh, that's just part of, part of who we are, mm -hmm. and um, sometimes it's probably healthy and sometimes it's not, and often it's frustrating, especially for those of us who, you know... Reside in an ivory tower? Yes, yeah. reside in an ivory tower, so... Um, but, uh, but I don't think there's an anti-science um, uh, strain of, uh, uh, in, in America now that's very important. I mean, there's certainly some there's areas where you see it. Mm -hmm. um, and nor do I think that, um, that the Trump phenomenon can be understood, you know, by, by Kind of resorting to a well, they're just they're irrational or, or they, they're rejecting expertise. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the obviously the Trump phenomenon is overdetermined. There are many explanations. Of so, course. so and no one has. There's no one right explanation. There's many converging um, plausible explanations. But certainly, you know, one of the w ones that has gotten a lot of attention that I think makes a lot of sense. Um, and it, you know, is that uh, the the kind of processes, combined processes of of creative destruction, that mm -hmm. is, economic change due to technological uh, innovation and the remaking of industries and the elimination of jobs and the de-skilling of the workforce and all of that stuff, combined with the globalization of the economy, mm -hmm. has disenfranchised many many people from the global economy. Right. from the national economy. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. by the way, there's nothing new about this. Um, of course. Uh, Mike Crow and I have been talking about this since the late 90s. Right. Um, uh, it's been that the, the dispersion of wealth in the U.S., uh, increasing concentration of wealth has been documented uh, as a phenomenon starting in the late 70s. Mm -hmm. so, so what we're seeing in some sense is finally a kind of populist demagogue came along who was good enough to, um, to mobilize people uh, who who had been who have been disenfranchised by these forces mm -hmm. um, through promises that I don't believe he can deliver right nonetheless the phenomenon is real mm -hmm. um, and it's one that neither party has been willing to or able to take seriously enough uh, to, to, to really try to do something about and it's really hard I don't mean to suggest that the answers are easy right. uh, but I do mean to suggest that um, that that those of us who care about science and technology and its role in in society need to recognize that that it's part of the problem as well as hopefully part of the solution, All right. um, because it's our kind of pell-mell um, uh, pursuit of of innovation and change and, mm -hmm. and 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 kind of growth regardless of where the growth comes from um, that has gotten us to to, to where we are. Um, mm -hmm. 
And uh, so, you know, if it's true that um, that in the industrial heartland of the country, um, uh, people voted for Trump because they didn't see um, any reason to believe that the kind of globalization narrative and the growth narrative and the innovation narrative was benefiting them. Mm -hmm. You can say that's a rejection of expertise, or you can say that's actually a, a, an empirically robust response to their experience. Okay. Um, and uh, so why should they continue to believe um, that more of the same sorts of policies sure. and the same narratives would deliver to them uh, what what uh, 50 years of those narratives have not delivered to them. Right. And in fact, their experience has been quite the contrary, that you know, we've been, people like us have benefited from it, people like mm -hmm. them have not. Right. And so I, I see this as um, uh, not a rejection of expertise, I see it as a rejection of, uh, of narratives purveyed by experts mm -hmm. who benefited from those narratives. Sure. Um, and while it may be true as a statistical matter, you know, that overall mm -hmm. there's more wealth, um, uh, overall, um, uh, there's there are more better jobs globally. I think all these things are probably true. Mm -hmm. um, we have not attended to the people who have been screwed by those narratives, and by not attending to them, um, as those numbers grew, uh, the danger that someone like Trump would come along and figure this out and mm -hmm. figure out how to mobilize them, I think, was there. And not only that, we're seeing this everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we saw it with Brexit. We're seeing yeah, it now in, in France. France yep. uh, we've seen it in Denmark, mm -hmm. um, and uh, and maybe in Holland now. So, so this is you know, it's to me what's incredible is how how international this phenomenon is. Yes. is. So obviously there is something going on mm -hmm. that is suddenly triggering a destabilization of the system. You know, it might be gratifying to us to say, oh, it's a rejection of rationality or expertise. Mm -hmm. I think uh, that's too think simple. That's, it's a, also a it's it's a self-satisfying delusion. Um, that's fair. Uh, what's you know what's it? I, I think it may be true mm -hmm. that um, electing a guy like Trump isn't going to make anything better for these people except to provide some sal psychic salve. You know that they're rejecting the system. Sure. Um, but it is true that the experts haven't provided uh, an answer to what it is that ails mm -hmm. this disenfranchised sector of the society. So I think this is a big opportunity for us, that is mm -hmm. for SFIS, mm -hmm. for those of us who think like this, to think about, okay, well look, we don't like this guy Trump, right? but, but he has evoked something real in the system. Mm -hmm. um, and if we say what we care about is linking uh, science and technology to problems to solving problems, mm -hmm. then this is a huge this opportunity a to do so. This <laughs> yeah. is a problem and it's a huge opportunity to do so. And so what Trump in a way has done is, I think he's created a, 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 an opportunity for us to take our case um, uh, public and to, and to provide some real, uh, a real kind of counter narrative mm -hmm. to the standard science innovation growth progress narrative and I should say I believe in science innovation growth and progress I mm -hmm. just don't think we've done it the right way okay um, and so uh, so you know Trump worries me mm -hmm. he's scary in many ways um, but I think uh, what he's done is made inescapable um, 
uh, a problem that, uh, that that we ought to be well positioned to have some really positive uh, answers to. So that's you know that's what I hope we'll be doing the next four years. Sounds good. You know, if you believe in the science, I'm almost afraid to say that suggests that one requires a certain amount of stress to motivate productivity and action. Then there you go. There's yeah. our stress, yeah. right? Yeah. Though no, no, this gets back to our point about what you know what where's the edge and the creativity going to come from? Yeah. Um, and uh, so maybe this maybe this provides it, and we can all become beginning filmmakers, low budget filmmakers again. There we go, low budget filmmakers innovating for the future. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Dan. Cool. Thanks, Heather. All right. For more where that came from, including our undergraduate and graduate programs, check out the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at sfis.asu.edu. The Future Think Podcast is produced with the support of the School for the Future of Innovation in Society and the Risk Innovation Lab at Arizona State University. Our music is by Mark Van Hare. Our production assistant is Anna Lopez. Please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, and on Twitter at FutureThinkPod.